the book of 1 John in the New Testament and read together the short passage from chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. The book of 1 John in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, where we read of John's warning against antichrists. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. This is the living and abiding word of God. Thanks be to his most holy name. Now, in our Sunday evening services, we have been pursuing the great truths and teaching of the first book of John, this very short but lovely and very challenging portion of God's word in the New Testament scriptures. And many of you who have come regularly will remember that up to this point in our studies and expositions of this book, we have seen two great signs that mark out the genuine Christian, two tests that we can apply to our lives to know whether indeed we are in Christ and our faith is genuine and real and not counterfeit and false. And the first of those tests, I remind you, is a moral test. It is the test of whether we confess our sins to God and acknowledge our sinnerhood and whether, uh, in a parallel sense, we keep his commandments. And the second great test, you will recall, has been the social test, whether we, as professing Christians, love the brethren dearly and the negative side of that is that we do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. The moral test and the social test. Lovingly but very searchingly applied to our lives, as you remember, in the earlier portions of this letter that we have studied together. Now this evening, these first two tests lead into the third great test of this letter which will at various points as we continue through it recur in various ways. And it's not the moral test, nor is it the social test, but it is what we might call the theological or the biblical test 
of whether I am a Christian. And so this evening, you can readily see, I think, from the reading of these six or so verses, that we are in the realm, beloved, tonight of truth and theology and doctrine. And the importance of these things, my dear friends, I cannot sufficiently emphasize to you here tonight. In other words, what is necessary in order that I may be assured in my inmost soul that I am a Christian is not simply that I confess my sins and keep God's commandments, nor simply that I have been enabled to love the brethren in the fellowship of Christ's church and that I do not love the world, but also that I love and follow the truth of God as it is declared in Christ and in the holy word of Scripture itself. Now, before we begin even to look at the passage this evening, surely you yourselves can see something of the importance of it as we live in a day of cults and religions and false sects and heresies, all of which take the name for themselves of being Christian. And what attracts so many people, I suggest to you, to these cults is that they do apparently bear some of the tests of being a real Christian. For instance, I have known many people who are attracted to a certain cult because the people in it have warmth and love for one another and commitment to one another. And these same people have sometimes been in orthodox congregations of the Christian church and they have alleged that there is a coldness there and there isn't the warmth and love and fellowship and caring for one another that they have found in the cult that is outside of orthodoxy. And it appeals to many people. But you see, scripturally, where we are and where we are going to see ourselves to be this evening is that we can avoid that danger, that very real danger of being led astray from the truth by remembering that it is not just test one that is needed, nor is it test two that is needed, but it is test one and two and three together. It is not enough that there should be warmth and fellowship and love of the brethren unless there is also the commitment to the truth of God along with it. And the New Testament, I must tell you, everywhere requires the third test as well. Now, as we come into this situation, I am in danger of treading on toes this evening, but I must do it as a faithful minister of God's word. I have known people, you see, who have said to me, do you say that I am not a Christian because I don't believe in this particular doctrine, even though my life is moral and upright and I love others? And I have to say to them, the answer to that question is yes, you are not a Christian if in the great fundamental truths of the scripture you are not where you should be in terms of your commitment to them. And inevitably, what I am saying to you this evening leads 
to the need for a critical test, first of our own lives, and then of other persons, and then of whole movements that may claim to be Christian, but fail in terms of this third great test that John is bringing to us here. And beloved, let me emphasize to you, when we are in that position, there are only two possible answers. Either a person is in Christ and is a Christian and is into the Scriptures, or else, as John tells us ultimately, he is believing a lie and is deceived and is in the company not of Christians, but of antichrists who are against all that the Lord Jesus Christ teaches and stands for. Beloved, there is no gray area And which one, I ask you this evening, is your conviction and your position? Are you with Christ or are you with Antichrist? So John in this passage is lovingly calling to those who are dear to his heart. You see how he addresses them, dear children. He's lovingly calling them to be on guard and to be encouraged as we will see. Now I want to divide this passage, as you notice from the sermon outline, into the Antichrists, first of all, and then into that great subject of the anointing by the Holy Spirit with which Paul uh, John deals, and finally with the necessity of abiding, as he also brings to our attention. Now, first of all, you'll notice that in these six verses, then, there is the subject of the Antichrist in the plural. And you find this, you notice, in verses 18 and 19, and in verse 22, and the beginning of 23. Dear children, verse 18, this is the last hour, he says. And in that last hour, he reminds them they know that the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come, and this is how we know it is the last hour or the last time. Now, let me begin quite quickly and briefly by identifying the terms that John is using here. What does he mean? First, by referring to the last time, and secondly, to the term Antichrist. And then let's look at the identity of the Antichrist and the unmasking of the Antichrist, or the Antichrists, as I should say. Well, first of all, the time. Dear children, this is the last hour or the last time. Now, to what period is John, the beloved apostle, referring as he gives this warning and encouragement to his dear children? Well, let me tell you without beating about the bush that that time is now. It's very clear in Scripture that it is now because John, as we have seen all through this letter so far, has been writing in the background of error and theological falsity. He's been writing in the background of the Gnostics, as we saw, who claim to know God. Their name, as you remember, comes from the very word knowledge, and yet had totally distorted the revelation that had been given through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's clear 
from the context of this passage, but the time he's referring to is the present age, the gospel age, the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And you have confirmation of this in many places, such as in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, where you remember that God, who at sundry times and in different ways had revealed himself to the prophets, to our fathers, says the writer to the Hebrews, has in these last days revealed himself to us in his own Son. And you have a similar reference to these last days in Acts 2, when Paul, standing up on the day of Pentecost, quotes the prophecy of Joel that in the last days God will pour out his spirit in such and such a way. And so the whole testimony of the New Testament, beloved, is that we are now living in the last era of history. Now you say this is a very long era. And it is a very long era. And I have to say to you that the architect of time is not bound by any human clocks that we may set. And John was not wrong. It is in this last great sweep of history that everything is being set for the glorious second advent of our Lord. And when he comes, nothing else will need to be done. All will have been accomplished that God intended. The last era of history is now working out in our days. How long it will last, we do not know. But this, beloved, is the last time. Now, the second term, Antichrist, you notice in verse 18, needs a word of definition. It's used only in John's epistles, and there it is used five times. Here in this verse, again in verse 22, in chapter 4, verse 3, and in Second John, verse 7. And we, I think, are right in identifying that term Antichrist in a certain sense with what Daniel in chapter 7 spoke of, the forces that would arise against the kingdom of God, leading finally to the abomination of desolation that he spoke of in that passage. We are to relate it to Mark chapter 13, where Jesus said that many false Christs would arise and false prophets or teachers would arise in the age in which the church ministers and deceive many. We are to relate it undoubtedly to Paul's words in Second Thessalonians 2 verses 3 and 4, where he speaks of the rise of the last Antichrist, whom he denominates as the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. And certainly we are to think of it in terms of that great opposition to God that arises in Revelation 13, the beast coming out of the sea, the four animals rolled, as it were, into one whose intention is to overthrow the kingdom of God upon the earth. Now, all of this simply amounts to John's teaching in this verse that there will be one final and awful anti-Christian power who will set himself against the Lord Jesus and his church and seek for its ultimate destruction. But there will also, says John, look at verse 18, be those who precede and foreshadow that final manifestation of evil. 
There are many antichrists, he says, who already have come amongst us in the world. And an antichrist, literally in the Greek word, means someone who is the opposite of Christ and who may even stand in the place of Christ. Now, with these words of definition, look at what John is saying to his beloved children regarding the danger of error. Look at their identity in verse 22, where he continues the theme. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Now, what John is focusing upon, and I want you to grasp it this evening, is not the final, ultimate Antichrist who will come. He is focusing on the Antichrists who are in the world now. And if you grasp that, the meaning begins to unfold. Who then are they? And the answer is, They are the ones who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I want you to notice that they are not demons, my dear friends. They are not evil spirits from the realm of evil. They are men. And moreover, as we will see, they are men who have been or even are in the church of God at this time. And the essence of their character is the denial of Christ's deity. Whoever says that Jesus is not the Christ is already an antichrist. And what clearly is in mind is not the denial of Jesus' Old Testament messiahship, but the denial of his deity that he is the Son of God. This is made clear, as you notice, at the end of verse 22, where he says, whoever denies uh, the Father also denies the Son. What is in mind is the deity of Christ. Now, let me take your thoughts on for a moment on this subject. It is not peripheral. It is not on the circum, uh, on the circumference. It is central. John Calvin, in his commentary upon this passage, says Christ is the mark at which all the heretics address their arrows. Think of that. And it is proved again and again in church history. The Arians arose after the Gnostics, denying the deity of Jesus. After them, the Nestorians who confused the human and the divine nature of Jesus, the Apollinarians, the Eutychians, the Sabellians, and so we could go on and on and on, all with their different and diverse heresies concerning the person of Jesus. And all of them claimed to be in the Christian church ere they were driven out of it. Now, this is the fundamental error that always arises in denial of God's truth, and it focuses upon the person of our dear Lord. 
This is what John regards so seriously in verse 22 that he calls it the lie. Something that is not conveyed to us in our own translation. And what I want to impress upon you this evening then is the importance of right doctrine as a definition of the reality of our Christian faith. Because once we begin to say that doctrine does not matter and how we view the Lord Jesus doesn't matter, we are already being embraced by the arms of Antichrist. And the characteristic of these men is that they were diabolically opposed to the revelation of the living God. Now you see, as you look around you today, you see the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, and you see Christian science, and you see the Moonies, and you see the Unitarians, and so I could go on and on again. And the characteristic of all of these false sects is that they deny in one way or another that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. Now, it may be offensive to some people, but we need to name names. But, beloved, we need to do it, because this is a serious error. Whoever does not acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ is already in the arms of Antichrist. Now, do you notice, secondly, that not only does he give to us their identity, who they are, but he also gives to us the unmasking of them in verse 19. They went out from us because they did not really belong to us. Now, what is he saying there? He is saying that some of these antichrists, as they are shown to be, have once been professing Christians in the very heart and center and body of the church. And the evidence of their error has been in their inevitable moving out from the fellowship of orthodoxy. Now, isn't it an interesting thing that the path of those who are in serious doctrinal error always leads out of the church at some stage, always into division, always into schism. And John sees this in his own day, that some had left the fellowships to which he was writing. They had departed from the ranks of orthodoxy. They had left both the truth and the church that stood for the truth. Now let me say at once that the New Testament church was not perfect any more than our own church is. And there were some evidently in their ranks even then who were not the genuine article, who were not in Christ, who were not regenerated by the Spirit of God, who had not tasted truly of the powers of the world to come. And we have to say in our own day that it is possible that some who may leave any congregation that is orthodox and committed to God's word may be leaving because they were never really in the true church in the first place. Now let me safeguard what I have said. I'm not referring here 
to evident believers who may choose to join another church or another denomination for honorable reasons. But I am referring to those who already have been encompassed by the spirit of Antichrist in the denial of fundamental truth. And so you see the application is very clear that if we are different from those who are in error, there should be within us a spirit of perseverance. What is the difference in the light of verse 19 between the man who is in danger of being led into serious error and the man who is a true child of God? And the answer is that in the latter there is perseverance. He continues with the members of the body of Christ. And that is the ultimate test, in a sense, of genuine participation in Christ. And only those, as we'll see in a moment, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and know his anointing in their lives will stand against the assault and deception of the devil. And it also tells us, doesn't it, the other truth of the nature of the visible church, but it is never perfect on the earth. And wherever the visible church is, there will be tares as well as wheat within it. And we need to take with great seriousness the words of our Lord who forbade the removing of those tares, lest with them the wheat also be uprooted. But we may rest rather in the confidence as we seek the purity of the church that inevitably at some stage those who are possessed by a spirit of Antichrist will withdraw themselves voluntarily. They will abandon the church as evidence that they were never really of it. And the truth will be protected by their withdrawal. Now, I want you to think of that as you consider the insidious nature of Antichrist. But secondly, do you notice that, Paul, that John comes to us with a word of encouragement? And he speaks to us in verses 20 and 21 of the anointing, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Now, I suggest to you that it's almost Pauline almost like the writings of the Apostle Paul, who constantly, you will know from reading the New Testament, begins his letters with encouragement to the churches that he writes to. And even where there are serious problems and even divisions such as in Corinth, he begins the note of encouragement to believers. And this is what John is doing now here in verses 20 and 21, as he knows but these earnest Christians to whom he writes have heard of the antichrists that are in the world and are beginning to be fearful and are beginning to say, am I safe? Shall I fall into these errors? What safeguard do I have that I might not be prone to the errors of false doctrine that lead me away from Christ? And so he brings in the subjective test, first of all, of the Holy Spirit's 
anointing. But you have received the anointing from the Holy One. Now the word in Greek that John uses is the word chrisma. And you can easily recognize that it is deeply associated with the word for Jesus, which is Christos. And literally translated, it is an unction or an anointing, just as the kings and priests and prophets of the Old Testament were anointed and set apart for their great office by the appointment of God. And what John is referring to here, here is surely the birthright beloved of every Christian. He's not referring to some subsequent experience that the Christian has that makes him safe from falling into error. But he's referring back to the time of their regeneration and their conversion to Christ when they received the Holy Spirit. And as John chapters 14 through 16 remind us, part of the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming to the church and coming to believers is what? to lead them into all truth and to teach them, Jesus said, all things. John 14, verse 26. And every true believer is thus sealed and anointed by the Holy Spirit from the very moment of his coming to faith genuinely in Christ. So that, John says, all of you know the truth. Now, do you see what he's saying to their encouragement? You have enlightenment, not from these heretics who once were amongst you and now have gone out from the fellowship of orthodoxy into error, but from our blessed Lord who has come and taken his Holy Spirit and put him within you that you might not be led away and led astray. And this is confirmed if you look down at verse 27. As for you, the anointing you received remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. Now, beloved, let me for a moment apply this to you. Every Christian has this charisma, this anointing. It's not something for the elite and the advanced in the Christian life. But the you is emphatic in all of these verses. You, as for you, you have received the anointing so that you do not need anyone to teach you. And John is saying that because the Holy Spirit is in deep and intimate association with the Lord Jesus who has sent him forth into the hearts of believers, so he will ensure that we are kept in close fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that a beautiful thought? I have known a Christian brother come to me and say concerning another sermon that he had heard in a certain church, my spirit did not inwardly bear witness to what that man said. And he was right. He had the sense inwardly to discern truth from error, to weigh it in the balances and find something that was said was seriously and deeply wanting. And I say to you who are young people in the service, do you sometimes wonder, how do I know 
that what I believe and hear in my church is the truth when so many voices are crying to me from outside and saying, believe this and follow me. And this is the teaching that leads to life. And the answer, young people, is that if you are in Christ, you also have an anointing of the Holy Ghost that will lead you into all of God's truth for your life. He will ensure that we are not deceived and ensnared by the evil one and led astray. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that Christians know everything. But what it does mean is that they know the full and absolute and certain and remarkable truth concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that comforting and encouraging? Now, thirdly, as I draw to a close, not only, you notice, is there the Antichrist and then the anointing, but in verse 24, there is the abiding that is the second guarantee for God's true people that they will not be led astray. See that what you have heard, John says, from the beginning remains in you, and so forth. And it's the second means of God, of John's encouragement. He lifts, as it were, a rich cordial, refreshing to the lips of God's people. How do I know I shall not be led astray by the antichristic teaching that is in the world? And the answer is by remaining in the apostolic teaching. And he says to us, go back to the beginning, beloved. Go back to where you first cast anchor in Christ as Lord and Savior. And go back to the primitive apostolic teaching of God's word. Abide in this. That truth which has been inscripturated in holy writ. Do not despise it and neglect it because it is old by running off after some new and novel thing as we heard this morning the Athenians did. But abide and remain and continue. All of these words in the King James Version are one word. The abiding in the truth of God. One of the commentators' definition of abiding is very interesting. He says, it is that continuous act whereby we may lay aside all that which we might derive from our own strength to draw all from Christ by faith. Isn't that a lovely definition of abiding? Laying aside everything that comes from our own strength to draw all that comes from Christ by faith. My friend this evening, are you there in that position? Are you saying, let the truth which first brought me to salvation in Christ dominate all my thoughts and feelings, however enticing the voices outside may be? And we should have profound respect for all but the scriptures teach. Is there a new doctrine out there? Is there a new experience that I am being commended to? And the answer is, don't drink the Kool-Aid. There's nothing new. 
There is nothing new under heaven. And the Christian faith, by its very essence, must conserve the deposit of truth that has been committed to it. Now let me then draw all of these things together in summary as I close. What is the conclusion? Isn't it beautiful to see the balance of Scripture this evening? Not only is the anointing of the Spirit needed, but it is the anointing of the Spirit on the Word of God. There is an anointing, thanks be to God, but there is a Word of truth, bless His name, and the anointing and the Word are to go together in order that we might be preserved. If you ever separate the Spirit from the Word, you are in danger of falling into the trap and snare of Antichrist. And the other thing, surely, that we must say in conclusion is this. What glory there is in orthodoxy, in believing and teaching and practicing the right things. You know, we should never believe those who say that the excitement in the Christian life is in the new things. We go back to the Reformation. What do we learn? Sola Scriptura, sola gratia, sola Christo, sola Deo Gloria. Scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone. And this is what John is giving us in the third test of whether I am a real Christian this evening, the test of doctrine. Am I there? Do I know the anointing of the Holy Spirit giving me that inward taste and discernment to know the difference between truth and error? Am I being driven to the scriptures of God's word, drawn back to the fountain of apostolic teaching and wisdom? Because if you lose these things, beloved, you've lost everything. Oh, thank God then this evening we have the truth, that we know the truth, that we are protected from Antichrist by a wall and hedges that God in his sovereignty has put around us, the anointing of the Spirit, the continuance of the Word, and that we know as a consequence Christ as the true and only revelation of God. Let me ask you, are you there this evening? Are you? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word and pray that you might, by your Spirit, apply it tellingly to all our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.